This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics. It's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. Susan Burton is a leader in the criminal justice reform movement, a founder of A New Way of Life, and an outspoken voice to end mass incarceration. Following the tragic accidental death of her five-year-old son, Susan's world collapsed. Coupled with past trauma and pain, her loss snapped the final tether of resilience. She descended into darkness and despair. But living in South Los Angeles, Susan didn't have access to the resources she needed to heal. Without support, she turned to drugs and alcohol, which led to nearly 20 years of revolving in and out of prison. Drawing on her own personal experience, she found 
started a new way of life reentry project in 1998, dedicating her life to helping other women break the cycle of incarceration. ANWOL provides resources such as housing, case management, employment, legal services, leadership development, and community organizing on behalf of and along with people who struggle to rebuild their lives after incarceration. She's nationally known as an advocate for restoring basic civil and human rights to those who have served time. Suave and I were honored to have her on the show. Please check out Susan's work at a new way of life.org. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Susan Burton. I'm founder and president of a new way of life reentry project uh, located in Los Angeles, uh, California. Uh, we're a like 20 over 20 year old uh, organization. I founded a new way of life based on my own experience of just being in a vicious cycle of incarceration, uh, needing help, wanting help, but unable to find help. Finally, October 4th of 1997, I found help in an upscale community of Santa Monica and wondered why I hadn't been offered help prior to all of the prison sentences. At that recovery program in Santa Monica, you know, I found out that I wasn't a bad person. I was a harmed, hurt person, and that there was something I needed to do is to participate in my recovery from drugs and alcohol and be willing to heal the harms of the past and move into the future. After leaving that recovery home, I started a new way of life reentry project to help other women just like me who were trapped in a vicious cycle of incarceration, just needing a hand up uh, support to rebuild their lives. So I'll just fast forward to today. A new way of life is a leading advocate in the prison reform movement. We provide services across 10 homes in South LA. We provide legal relief for people to be able to clear up the wreckage of their past in the form of expungements, certificates of rehabilitation. We'll help them get licensed. And also what we do is we have a family reunification department that helps people to reunite with their children. So we have a staff of attorneys that specifically focus on family reunification. You know, I had the opportunity uh, when I, I published my book, Becoming Miss Burton, to travel all over the nation and visit prisons and jails. And that's where I was able to meet Louise. And I'm so grateful to be here this morning uh, talking with him, seeing that he has been released and is now a really productive member of our community. And what I know is so many people are held in jails and prisons and cages across our nation that need to be here just like me, just like Luis 
providing and putting in as you know productive members of our society. I 100% agree, and I, I uh, we're we're about a year apart in that recovery journey. I was a heroin addict and spent a bunch of my my 20s in and out of county jails and and rehabs all over the West Coast. And I too, I'm really grateful to be here today. I, I it's so amazing to have you on the show. You know, both of us have followed your work, and you know, specifically this season is about women. And we have seen as we've been doing this the lack of resources for women, both in well incarcerated and when released. And so before we even get into questions, I just want to give you a huge, you know, thank you for focusing your work on other women, because as you probably and, you know, obviously, no, it's not an area that gets enough focus in the criminal justice system. And especially when people are out, women are the nexus of our communities and they seem to be the forgotten people in this whole process. And so before we start get, diving into questions, I can see Suave's already moving there. He wants to jump in. I just want to thank you so much for, for your amazing work from, you know, from one recovering former felon to another and, and just, just spot on. Everything you do is just so ahead of its time and so thoughtful. So, you know, just from me to you, thank you. And I'll let Suave jump in because I'm sure he's got, he's, he looks like he's, he's ready yeah, to go here. Thanks. I, I just want to say that when I met Susan, I was just coming out of a light sentence, coming back into the community. I was full of fear. I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And I go to this event with the Inside Out group and the first person I seen was her. And she was sitting there, I introduced myself, we sat down and instantly I felt like I was talking to my mother. That's the connection I felt. Like I was like, wow, because she wasn't talking to me like you just somebody else in here. I mean, she just gave me words of encouragement that when I got out, I was telling everybody, man, y'all gotta read this book. Y'all gotta read this book. And they was like, what you promoting for somebody else? I was like, no, this is some powerful stuff. And when I read the book, I read it like five times because I was like, how is it that this woman doing all this incredible work after what she's been in life with your son and your upbringing and to me, that was like, if Susan could do what she's doing in California, I could do that in Philadelphia. And that's what motivated me when I came home to start the um, New Stop Resource Center, where I had all the resources a person need in one building, one location. That's what really motivated me. It was your book. It was your story, because I was like, it don't make no sense that people come home and they don't have a place to get an ID, a social security, birth certificate. They don't have nowhere to go. And when you come home, it's hard to navigate these institutions because we just been away for so long. So we've been disconnected that we just don't know. So I'm reading your book, how you built your program. And I'm trying to mimic and copy that into what I was doing. So I just want to thank you. To, for just being that and impacting my life with your story. That's great, you know, and, That's great. Uh, and, I, and I always said it, and I always told Kev, I got her phone number, I'm gonna call Susan. He was like, really? I said, yeah. 
she always answered. You know, and that's the most important thing for people to understand when you come home, that you could call somebody and somebody would answer and give you that encouragement. And you done that for me. You know, I remember just calling you one time and just saying, how you doing? Yeah. You know, like, that's, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to really having an impact in people's life. And people don't understand, I'm in Philadelphia, you in California. I've met you in Grandisville, but yet you still had that impact in my life to this day. To this day, and I still wonder how you do it, how, how, where you muster the courage to do all you do after what you went through in your personal experience with your son. So I think that one of the things that happened for me is my willingness and ability to forgive and to connect with, be willing to help people based on my own experience. But I think one of the most freeing things that happened for me was that as I wanted to be forgiven for any harms that I had done through my travels, I also wanted to forgive those that had harmed me. And there, there was many, you know, and, you know, we can walk around and, you know, justify holding a grudge justify pointing the finger at someone who has really done significant harm. But what does that really get us? I wanted to be free. I wanted others to be free. And it started with me. So I think in being willing to forgive came a, a ability to have that type of connection with others, like the one when we sat down and greater for it. And there was, you know, just really energy flowing between you and me because I wasn't blocked, I guess, with hostile feelings and feelings of um, of uh, vengeance and so forth. You know, I wondered when when I wrote the book, I wondered if it was a book that would have impact on men. And when I sat down with you, uh, and other men, they told me through reading my book, they understood more of what their own mothers had went through. And I hope that lent uh, the ability for them to actually understand and maybe forgive some of them, the, the hostile feelings you might have about a parent not being what you expect a parent to be, but it was really, really rewarding and gratifying for me to sit down with you, Suave, and hear tell me that and understand that the book also was a book that men needed to read also. You know, I, I just think that your work speaks to the humanity of others and it's a reflection, you know, when I read the book, I was reflecting on my own mother, you know, because now we just look at our parents, we don't look at their hardship, what they went through to get where they at. All we know it is that's my mother and that she's supposed to do that. When I read that, you know, it, it, it reflected back on how my mother was um, sexually assaulted, you know, and that's how I was conceived. 
you know, how she felt at that time, you know, and why she went through what she went through, you know, uh, uh, it gave me, it gave me an understanding of what a mother go through when her son or daughter is incarcerated with a life sentence. And this, she really don't have no hope because she don't know what to do to get her son or daughter out of jail. That's the understanding I got from your yeah. book. And, and it also spoke to me because I always had the desire to come home and want to help my community. I just didn't know how. I've been away for so long. I've been away since I was a child. You know, so when I read the book, I was like, ooh, I want to do a resource center. You know, and I built my plan reading your book. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And, and, and I did it. I created a resource center with hundreds of people benefit. Unfortunately, the people that were sponsoring it, you know, they didn't see the, the fruit in it, but I did it. I did it, and hundreds of people benefit. And I always say, like, you never know where you're going to be impact from. You never know. So, Suave. And I remember when they, Yeah, I, I want to tell you, you know, that other people might not see the value of what you're doing. Other people might not connect to it in a way that, you know, you are committed uh, uh, to it. You know, what I say, you know, when I started a new way of life, no one, no one could understand or comprehend or have a vision for what I was doing. A matter of fact, I was um, uh, discouraged many, I, I heard discouraging remarks a lot. What I came to know is that the gift of having a dream to help others, you know, it's our gift. No one else has to, has to buy into it. But it, it's our gift and our dream. And want to just encourage you, you know, to continue to fulfill your gift, your dream, your destiny. Even if others can't see it around you, it, it's your dream. It's not their dream. It's, it's your dream. So you own it. You wear it. You walk it. You live it. You do it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I know Kevin got questions. Kevin, oh, I'm sorry for taking too much time. But <laughs> Well, I just, you know, it's funny because I had written down while you were both talking, like, when was that moment, Susan, that you knew that this was going to be your life's work? Because like, I, as also, like I said, a recovering addict, I was, I was on a, you know, in a, in a cell at San Bruno when they used to have the tears up here in San Francisco. And I woke up one morning and I said, I can't do this anymore. And it kind of just like everything shifted for me in that moment. Well, there have been um, a few uh, aha moments along my journey. I think it began when I confronted everyone around me about my experiences as a child. And it became clear to me that the people I, that was closest to me that I looked to take care of me just was not there for me and I needed to go get help. And that started, uh, October, that, that help started October 4th. 1997. And then uh, as I was recovering and I began to see how other people, you know, uh, in the more prominent West Side Beach community received these types of resources that were um, uh, not even available 
in 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 South LA. And uh, I think I think a pivotal moment for me was when I was sitting in a meeting and this guy from a wealthy family was saying that he had had an accident where people had gotten hurt. And well, first he started out with, he hated the color green and he had been, been in an accident where people had gotten hurt. And, you know, he had to go every day and paint the jail green. And, you know, he was under the influence in that accident. And this is a young, wealthy white guy. And as he's talking, I reflect upon the fact that I had to live in the jail and I didn't even hurt anybody. But he hated green because he had to paint the jail. And I just saw the different world in which he lived versus where I lived. And at that point, I began to think about, you know, what could be different in our world where people would get help instead of be caged up and chained up. After four and a half years in prison, Tanisha heard a lot of no's. With four kids and on her own, starting over was hard enough without the stigma of felony conviction. All they see is what's on paper. They don't really know who that person is or what they've been through. She received help from Candace Wesson. When I was in the halfway house, she came to the halfway house to bring me things to start my new job when no one else Candace started the Health KC after her own experience post-incarceration, connecting women with employers willing to look beyond their convictions, helping them get to and from work, and providing free toiletries and counseling. Part of what we do is to reduce recidivism by putting them back on jobs and getting them back on their feet to where they don't have to commit new crimes. So I got a question. Do you think that the system is doing enough to help our sisters they are still left behind in county jails, state jails, you know, uh, to really um, transform their life. You know, across the across the entire spectrum, our society discounts the ability, the talents, the importance of women. First of all, uh, we can see that in 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 wages in jobs, in, you know, different different ways. We can see that in the ability to play sports, education. We can just see it all the way across the gambit. But when it comes to poor women, and especially black women, there is this level of harm that is, that we're relegated to that is just horrifying, horrifying. Like, for instance, when we're incarcerated, Black women have yard jobs, porter jobs, uh, jobs that, you know, firefighting jobs and jobs that are just the the bottom of the, the ladder, the bottom of the ring. And we're not exposed to educational programs. We're not giving, you know, opportunity, rehabilitative programs. You know, I'm running a program now inside of our local jail and out of 15 women, one or two women each section, each each session, is black and the jail is 35% black while we are 8% of the population with 35% of the jail population and as and and we and I advocate for there to be equity 
in that class because we wrap a lot of services around the people in the class. And even though I'm a black woman and I advocate, uh, ultimately the sheriffs are, are, are responsible to who get access. And it's been in vain. They will not allow black women in that class. And one of the reasons why is because the black women are in the kitchen. The black women are cleaning the floors. Black yes. women are, are being, you know, trustees, but the other women are having, you know, more access to uh, opportunities to change their, their lives, you know. And, and I mean, we, those women in the class, we give them uh, money when they get home, we give them clothing, we give them housing, we give them reunification services, we give them all of these support services and we can't even access the black women. So, you know, it's an understatement to say that there is um, lack of equity. There's downright racial discrimination that's happening, uh, ramp that's rampant inside of jails. And, and yeah, women, women do not get, you know, across the board, you know, have a really, really tough time. But I just want to call out that black women have the toughest time of all. You know, what can we as a society do? I'm not gonna say what should we do because no, what what should we as a society demand that our institutions, jails and institutions that we pay with our tax dollars do with our sisters? And I say sisters because my Latina sisters and yeah. the state of Pennsylvania are considered black. Yeah. We all sisters and brothers, right? I'm not gonna say Latinos because that is a, a, a word game that the system play in PA. And most jails in PA, Latinos are classified white. So I need to say that we as a society across the board need to be willing to do the internal work to heal our perceptions, to open our hearts and minds to the idea of equity and equality, be willing to see the humanity and the potential of everyone. And so I just don't want to point it at a institution or practice or policy, but I think universally we need to be willing to do some healing within ourselves. Well, yes. the, the, the mention of your childhood trauma spoke to me as well. And I think it speaks to a lot of individuals that have been struggled with addiction and been incarcerated. You know, we we're dealing with a situation of generational trauma in, in marginalized and, and communities of color. And, you know, I, I, I just I want to also kind of follow up with Suave's question, you know, as far as that part of the issue goes, which is really, in my opinion, the root cause of most of our problems, you know, along with poverty and lack of support, what can we do to support our, our fellow, you know, humans that are dealing with this trauma? Obviously getting a, a degree in psychology, because a lot of us can't afford that, but how, how do we continue to support people when they get out? Not only the trauma that they dealt with as children, but in prison. I mean, you get re-traumatized when you get incarcerated. Well, you know, I, I do think that we need to really rethink what we're doing inside our prisons and rethink the numbers that we are sending to prison. I know, Kevin, that there are some folks that just do pose a threat to our society, but do we re-harm them, re-traumatize them, or do we 
wrap services around them, uh, support them to become the best that they can be. There are also so many people within our system that do not pose a threat. They're there for crimes of poverty, substance use, substance misuse, and mental health. Why are we locking them up? So we really need to, I think, scale back from using jails and prisons as a solution to social problems. It's been a struggle getting housing. Um, I only make $16.50 an hour, which I'm very grateful for, don't get me wrong, but I live in Fremont, California, and rent there is outrageous. So I live with my great-grandmother, who's 95, and nine other people live in the house. I have to share a bedroom with my 18-year-old cousin. I never have a moment alone. We all share one bathroom. I've tried um, applying for Section 8, low-income housing, but because of the sales case, I, I'm, I'm ineligible. Because I live with so many people, I can't even get my grandkids to come over and spend time with me because where would they be? Living with that many people, it doesn't make the house very kid-friendly. I don't have my own space. I'm not able to function, you know, like in my own space in peace. Totally agreed. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, we've, we, we've, we've so thrown fuel on this fire in California too, starting all the way back with Reagan and the, and the reduction of mental health, you know, facilities and help for people with mental health issues, you know, continuous trauma, continuous substance abuse. If you don't already have mental health issues will lead to that. And many people, you know, and I've watched this with my brother as an example. I mean, he's, he's used heroin pretty much his whole adult life since he was like 16 years old in and out of rehabs, in and out of jail, in and out of prison, you know, and just cannot seem to find the right combination of help that's going to get him out of this. And, you know, I, to some degree, you know, I take responsibility for my own actions and I kind of have that expectation of other people, but there's just people that have been so traumatized, you know, rethinking how we jail people using jails and prisons as mental health institutions is just clearly and, and obviously contributing to this problem. Now, and I've heard a lot of suggestions around this, but it is really a hard issue to parse because there is a ton of money out there, but people are not applying it to the right things. You know, and I guess like, how do we as a community come together around that? And really, you know, we, we want to give people some action items, like call your state senator, call your state rep, because the state level is where these things change, you know, and how can we help with that? How can we tell our listeners, we've got a big, a big, broad listenership to get involved? Yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, has, I, I believe that we all have different ways of creating and thinking about change and transform, to transform, you know, the harm that we do as a society. So yes, you can call your a city council person, you can call your state legislature, you can call your, uh, senators and Congress people and let them know that you want you want to see change in our approach to community safety. We want uh, uh, different types of solutions for real community safety. We want to see victim services and and when I say victim services, I should have went, been able to go somewhere when I was harmed. when I lost my son, there should have been services for me. Uh, there should have been somewhere I could go for grief counseling. These are places that victim services, when women are harmed, when young people are harmed, there should be a place that they can go that that, that harm doesn't 
turn them into something that either harms themselves or harms others. So there's a lot of things that we can do to reinvest in what true community safety would look like. For those that's listening that perhaps haven't read your book, because I'm pretty sure they're going to read your book after they listen to this. If it's not too much for you, and if it is, we understand. Um, can you tell them how you lost your son? So my son was was outside playing, and in the, in, and I was inside cooking dinner, and he was hit by a LAPD detective. Um, he was ran over by an eight LAPD detective, uh, a veteran officer, and so it was an accident. But the policeman didn't get out of his car. That was not an accident. The police department never really came forth and apologized. That was not an accident. So when I say that I had to do a lot of work and really figure out and not want to be, not want to hold harm and learn how to forgive, I had to go really, really deep. And I had to let go really, 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 you know, for... For the good, for my good. Yeah, and go those ahead. were some of the things and some of the acts that I had to had to deal with. So um, I want people to know the title of the book. It's Becoming Miss Burton, From Prison to Recovery to Leading the Fight for Incarcerated Women. And for the listeners, for, for the listeners out there, you know, we still have thousands of people locked away in federal prisons doing multiple decades for drug charges. And they can call their folks to say they want real reform around the rock crack sentencing disparity that happens. And one person I'm thinking about in particular is a woman by the name of Michelle West, who uh, has been incarcerated, I think going into her third decade for a drug charge. Uh, a conspiracy charge, and it's it's just it's just frightening. Why why are we punishing her like that? You know, AK, I want to go back one second to the mental health question, right? Because I want our audience to understand: when you are in state prison in Pennsylvania with a life sentence, you are not entitled to see a psych. You can't you can't seek mental health treatment as a lifer. I was in prison 31 and a half years, and the only time I ever was given a mental health evaluation was on my way out. For them 31 years, I've requested plenty of time. I need to see somebody. Because there were times when, you know, I had suicidal thoughts. I remember when my mother died, that was like the darkest moment of my incarceration. You know, I thought about ending it. I was like, I can't do this shit no more. I, 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 want, I want to kill myself, you know? Everything I love was gone from me. You know, my whole connection to the world was gone, you know? And the only thing the jail would suggest was, we could give you some medication to go to sleep. You know, they, they way of treating mental health in state institutions in Pennsylvania is by medicating the individual, which in turn messed them up more. So I just want our listeners to understand for those that think that you could go into a prison and receive mental health, no, 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 that's not that's not it. You know, most prisons in Pennsylvania could be considered mental health institutions because at least 50% of the people there do not belong there. They need help, not 
incarceration. You know, and it's hurtful when them guys, when them brothers and sisters max out and they come home with that problem because that's the real challenge begin. I work in the mental health field to that. I see it every day. I get phone calls. I just had a phone call from a brother that was in a bridge, wanted to jump. I had to get out my bed, just being released from the hospital, go get him, bring him into the clinic where I work at, sit with him, make sure he got the treatment that he deserved, you know? So, and these are brothers just coming home from prison with these problems because the state institutions don't treat mental illness. They give you medication. They keep you medicated till you max out. Then they kick you out. And I want to, I just want our audience to understand that this is what we dealing with. Those in the field, those in the front line, those they got to deal with this issue. This is what we face on a day to day basis. And then we wonder why certain people do certain things to go back to prison. I think that Suave, that one of the things that we need to understand that it just doesn't take three decades for people to rehabilitate and the lack of an investment on reentry supports and therapy and mental health services is chilling, you know. I mean, when I found recovery in Santa Monica, one of a part of that was I went to weekly therapy sessions. Uh, and that made all the difference, in, you know, in the, the, the depth and the level, uh, the quality of my recovery. You know, I know that inside, you know, we uh, create community and help each other through, but being able to uh, actually access, you know, mental health services in the, in the way of therapy, in the way of grief support is, you know, something that should be a given. But, you know, I just want to ask the listeners to think about the humanity of the next man or woman. You know, uh, don't paint them as if the worst moment, uh, the worst action in their life is all this person is it makes up the whole of that person. It's a moment in their life. And to see their humanity, to see their potential, to allow them the dignity uh, that we would extend to ourselves, uh, let's, let's, let us think about how we extend that to the next person. I mean, here in California, we spend $75,000 a year to lock someone up. And upon their release, there is just no investment in the individual. $75,000 a year, you know, there could be a lot done with that that would transform, you know, our communities and societies if it was spent differently. Um, uh, instead of harming, torturing, uh, because that's what happens inside. We are tortured. Uh, we are harmed, all our dignity is stripped away. Uh, our humanity is caged up. So, you know, I'm so glad that you made it through, Suave. I'm so glad that you're here with us 
and you're doing, you know, you're doing your dream of providing support for those brothers uh, and sisters that are coming out behind you. And you've only just begun. It's only been a few years now. How long have you been home? Um, November 20th will be four okay. years. Yeah, it's just been, and it's been a, just a it's few years and look at you and look at what you're doing. And there's so much of that type of good that is locked behind the wall. But, but it's because of people, but it's because of people like you, they still assist, they still, uh, She's coming on. Encourage she was the first person us. you talked about. And when I say us, you know, first person. I'm talking about man that people don't think could be encouraged by a woman. You know, I remember we had sessions on your book after your visit. You know, we had discussions. We had book discussions on your book. And grown man crying. When you see grown man lifers, you know, crying about certain things that they read because there was touch and there was trigger to go into their own humanity and their own past. To me, it's like that, when I read your book, it was the first time that I realized the trauma and the anxiety that I was feeling to come home because I realized what the heck I'm going to do when I get out. Yeah. I don't have nobody in Philadelphia. I don't have no family, you know? So I'm I'm like, the level of anxiety to me was worse than the news that I got when my mother died. It was worse because I was like, at least in prison, I get three bills a day. I know where I'm gonna sleep that night. Coming home, I didn't. You know, I don't know if I could eat. I don't know if I could support myself. I don't know if I could get from point A to point B, but then I remember, I remember our conversation. I remember word for word, you know, that we sat there at the table, we was eating, and you said, you are gonna do great things. Don't fear. I remember the words. You said, don't fear, you are gonna do great things. You know, and I always remember that because I tell people, you know, never focus on your darkest moment. Focus on the present. There are people out there that will help you if you ask. There are people out there that care about us returning back to the community. You know, and with that in mind, I came home. I had no property. I had one book and that book was your book. And I introduced one of my mentors to your book. Maria and a host. I remember. I introduced her. I'm telling you, you got to read this book. And then right after that, she interviewed you for her show, right? So to me, it's like paying forward what I got, you know, because you pay it forward by dedicating your life to service, serve others, the same way other people serve you when you was in your darkest moment. Yeah. And that's what I learned from you. That's the impact you had on my life. Yeah. You know, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm not ashamed to say, you know, uh, I met this lady from California. I didn't even know who you was. And we hit it off. But like I said, when I started, I connected to you because 
when I was talking to you, it felt like I was talking to my own mother. Yeah. Because that's what my mother would have said if she was alive. Don't fear and go out and do great things. And that's why I have that connection with you. And that's why I say, if I ever get my podcast off the ground, one of my guests got to be Miss Susan. And when we decided to do season two, I told Kevin, Kevin, what did I tell you? We have to get Miss Susan on. She's doing this work in California that's amazing. You know, because I think that our society across the country needs to hear, needs to see people that they can relate to doing this type of work. Because sometimes we, we go into these institutions and come out and we don't think we could make a difference out in the community because we've been in an institution. I don't even consider myself, right, a returning citizen looking for a second chance. I never had a first chance to begin with. Period. I consider myself a human being that made a mistake and have made amends to correct that mistake by dedicating his life into a work of service. Period. You know, and if we all come, if we all come home with that mentality of severing others, we would not fail in our recovering or our you know, you know, there's been time when I think I don't know how to pay my rent, but somebody always helped me. You know why? Because when you do good, good things will come to you. Yeah, you know, uh, Suave, I think that all of us, I'll say, you know, most of us sit and think about, you know, ways that we can contribute to the building or the transformation of a better world. Right now, there's a one of our um, one of our state prisons. I mean, here is right here. This is a a check from a guy uh, named Julio in the California State Prison, and he has sent a check to us. This particular check, you know, isn't but for a dollar, but there's been about 30 guys in that prison who has sent money to contribute to supporting the organization that supports women coming home. That really says, you know, speaks speaks a lot to me about people's desire to do good in the world, but locked away. They are actually coming off of their commissary. I mean, this guy that sent the dollar, he might make $16 a month and he spent sent one sixteenth of his paycheck to us. So we're going to try to get as many home as we can and support yeah, them when they come so home. What we want you to do is share uh, where people could uh, contact you, donate to, because um, our show is being listened to all over the country and we just want people to just yeah. So where can people, where can people contact you, send a donation, or you know, keep up with uh, a new way of life. So our our website is a newwayoflife.org. People can follow me at Susan Burton LA. And if they want to call our, our office number is area code 323-563-3575. So again, that's a newwayoflife.org. 
Susan Burton LA on Instagram and Twitter and area code 323-563-3575. And in closing, you know, we have this thing called a call of action. We want you to do the call of action this for this episode on whatever you want yeah. to do, a call of action to our community. So my call to action is, is for people to see, see our humanity. That's all. When you look and you see a person, see their humanity and their potential. Kevin, any last thoughts, Kevin? I know you're thinking, Kevin. Just thank you. I mean, couldn't end it on a more perfect note. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you. It was great. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone, and please, if you can, take action. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.